You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 79 on today's show, Refuse to Do Nothing, Revisited. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahovia, and this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. I'm so glad that you have joined us again. I am here in the studio myself uh, because I am so glad to introduce a conversation that Sandy Morgan had very recently with a past guest of the show with an update. You may remember back in episode number 50 that Kim Yim had joined us to talk about uh, her book that she co-authored, if I could talk, with Shane Moore called Refuse to Do Nothing. And I'm so glad to be able to share this interview with you from Sandy that happened at the Women of Vision Faces of Change Dinner uh, here just recently, and she interviews our special guest, again, returning Kim Yim and Shane Moore with an update on the book Refuse to Do Nothing. So here's Sandy's conversation with Kim and Shane. So I'd like to introduce our two authors who are special guests here today, and I'd like to start with Kim because... We, we know Kim. She's ours. She's in Orange County. She's been part of our, our task force, and her whole family is here. They could probably do a much better job of introducing her. For me, she has become a friend. Um, I admire how she is making this part of raising her children. She founded the San Clemente Abolitionist in San Clemente, of all places where you would do that. Great idea. She is the director, executive director of the SOCO Institute, a charitable arm of the SOCO group where she has, um, supports and advocates for a variety of organizations such as Cure International, Opportunity International, International Justice Mission, and World Relief. She has a master's in Christian leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary. She writes, she speaks, uh, on issues related to human trafficking, and she has a blog at abolitionistmama.blogspot.com. You can find that in here. Um, Kim Yim, please come and join me here. Um, and then as she comes, I'd like to invite Shane Moore to come. And I'm going to spend a little t- more time on her, her bio because we don't know her. She's from Chicago, I thought. But then I found out she's really from South L.A., and you just went to Chicago, and how is that weather working for you? <laughs> yeah, so, um, it's no good. yeah, you don't like that. Don't but get her started. <laughs> when, when I started getting to know um, uh, Shane, I learned that she was one of the founders of One with Bono, you know, the lead singer, for those of you in a different generation, he's the lead singer of Irish rock band U2, okay? She's a musician, she sings, She's an author. She wrote Soccer Mom, right? 
And she also is part of the West Chicagoland Anti-Trafficking Coalition. She's been featured in the Huffington Post, Christianity Today's Hermeneutics. She loves magazine, the blog at One Campaign, More Magazine, Parent Life blog, I need to catch my breath. Moore writes a column, Worldly Re Women, for the magazine Fulfill. She's a founding member of One Moms Advisory Council. She was ABC's Person of the Week in 2011. She has a Master's of Art in Theology. She's presented at the Justice Conference, International Justice Missions Freedom Summit, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the Bay Area Anti-Human Trafficking Freedom Summit, and the Festival of Faith and Writing. She's appeared on CNN, WTTW Chicago, and CBS Los Angeles. Global Soccer Mom was featured in Publishers Weekly, Sojourners, Ladies Home Journal, and Red Book. Her work crosses across the faith community and beyond. And she is a member of the World Vision Speakers Bureau. I'm going to stop there because we don't have any more time for all of that. Wow. She's kind of an overachiever. Oh, yes. An overachiever. I get that. So, so Shane, um, one of the things that I have found really um, interesting as I've gotten to know you is you do all this and you overcome a lot of other things as well and I just I, is it okay if I'm a little more personal sure. this is a great group these are our friends. Our friends two years ago Shane had a total hip replacement now there are some of us in this room who would say oh well I'm out of action now but not Shane more so I'm just really really pleased that you're in my circle of friends now so um, let's start with Shane. How do you do soccer mom and all the list I just read? Yeah, you know, I have been very honored to um, get to travel the country and speak to many beautiful groups like yourselves. And first of all, I just want to say, as a caveat, I love Women of Vision, and I'm really happy to be here tonight. And I'm always so humbled and thankful when very busy people take time out of their lives to spend an evening to hear about what is happening on behalf of um, other people in the world that are suffering. And so I am very humbled to be here with you this evening. And, you know, I will say, I, I'm from the um, western suburbs of Chicago, and I really am um, that soccer mom, that demographic. You know, my first book was Global Soccer Mom, and it wasn't that I was playing soccer. It was that I was that demographic. I was driving the minivan, and, you know, my idea of free time was when I could leave all the kids at home and, like, spend an hour leisurely walking through Target. You know, I mean, right? I mean, that's totally who I was. And But um, so how I fit it into my life um, is that God broke my heart. And we saw that quote that may our hearts be broken by the things that break the heart of God's. My heart was broken, and so I, I didn't start by um, writing books or traveling and speaking. I started with events like this, of just coming and educating myself educating other people and doing what was right in front of me. You know, and so when I had little children, it was just what, when I, when I could fit things in. But as I, my children grew up, you know, I always say my, my vision also grew. 
and I and I could see more and do more. And so, for those of you in various stages of life, you know, I just encourage you that your children, no matter what ages they are, whether they're the toddlers or they're you know, successful business people in their 40s and 50s. You know, your children are watching what you do. I call it with your non-mommy or daddy time. And, and so that's how, you know, you can be a global thinker. You can be a woman of vision or a man of vision in the midst of very busy lives. How old are your children? I have a senior in high school um, who's actually headed to Westmont College up in Santa Barbara. Yay! <laughs> I'm excited about that. And then I have a freshman in high school and a sixth grader now. Okay. See, I think that's still a lot of work. There. Yeah. So, Kim, um, how did you process this broken heart? When I read the first chapter in, in your writing, I was just... I could feel your tears. Yeah, and there were a lot of them. I think I processed over a period of six months, six to eight months, and um, it came with a lot of tears, a lot of late nights, a lot of journal writing, a lot of showing up to anything I can get my hands on. I would just show up at the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force and sit in the back and try to figure out, like, make eye contact with someone and see if I could um, start a conversation with someone. And so the process of that broken heart, um, it definitely did not happen overnight. It was through a series of many, many months and uh, I did a lot of research. I kind of thought um, the more I understood the problem that the heartbreak I was feeling would lessen. So I thought that if I understood why men and women were being trafficked and enslaved, that maybe if I understood the problem, it almost would take me off the hook. Like I did if I understood it, then there might be a reason for that. But the more I learned, the more uh, angry and frustrated um, about the problem because there had to be something more to be done. And so the process, to answer that question, that process was just very, very long. It required a lot of research, a lot of prayer, a lot of conversation, and just showing up to anything I could possibly could to learn, asking a lot of questions to the experts like yourself. How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter is 13 and my son is 10. So in that research, the thing that struck me in her story is she went back to the original, well, maybe not the original, but our early years of uh, abolitionists. And so when I got to page 23, I thought, she is brilliant. She got Malia, her daughter, 13-year-old, the Gremke sisters, and Lucretia Mott all on the same page as she describes her decision to refuse to do nothing, she became an abolitionist. And I want you to tell us, what is an abolitionist? An abolitionist, from my understanding, is someone who knows that slavery is wrong and that the um, forcing any human being uh, to, to work on any capacity, any service, without freedom or a fair wage is morally wrong. And so an abolitionist is someone who knows that's wrong and is actively doing their part and putting an end to slavery. Jane, what is an abolitionist? Yeah, I love the word abolitionist and I really deeply am bummed out that our generation uses the word human trafficking over mm -hmm. slavery. You know, I'm from Illinois, right? Abe Lincoln, he abolished slavery. Right? I mean, that's what we all learned, you know, in our, in our in school. But, you know, it took 
my friend, the power of relationship, Kimberly, constantly calling me and educating me the human, that slavery was alive and well today. And I love the word abolitionist, and I wish that we could use that word and embrace it today and not just associate it with the transatlantic slave trade of 200 years ago. Slavery is alive and well today, 27 million slaves in the world. You know, I think Kim and I got involved with it because our hearts were breaking that 80% of people enslaved today are women and children. And those are not just faceless, poverty people that we don't wanna think about. They're moms, and those are their children, and those are their daughters. And so to me, an abolitionist, we absolutely stand on the spirit and um, the tenacity of the abolitionists of 200 years ago. I love that word. I wish that we embraced it more in this movement because it is absolutely abolitionist, and I can go on and on about this. It totally sparked my imagination when we were writing the book that um, it was 200 years ago. Okay, you guys ready for this? It was 200 years ago. It was the first time in the history of the world that you see people rallying and organizing themselves around an evil in the world that had nothing to do with them. Are you tracking? Meaning, they rose up against something just on the merits that it was wrong. It didn't, have any, it didn't, it didn't affect their town. It, it wasn't necessarily affecting people in their own country. It wasn't even their own continent. And yet it was, it was this. It was small groups of like-minded, faith-based Christian evangelicals in the United States and in, and in the UK who started getting together and started speaking out and mobilizing themselves on behalf of other people. And I think that is so exciting. We're talking about the history of the world and it was with this issue, slavery, human trafficking, where it was other people who changed history on behalf of people for no other reason that it was wrong. And to me, that's an abolitionist. You identify as that because you stand on the spirit of those people who took a stand and just said, not acceptable in my lifetime. And I love it that you brought up the women's groups in there. And you have a quote from Adam um, Hochschild. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, you should read it. I don't, I don't have my book with me, but there, I, you know, and actually, I, Kimberly can answer this too, because she, this is what would happen is, you know, Kim is, you know, she's the, okay. the, the academic, Kim, and she would have it. all of these books, right and then she would send them to me, and I'd be like, Kim, I cannot read all these books, you know, but she is the one who really introduced me to all of the historians that really documented very well the, the slave trade of 200 years ago. It's, it starts right. Yeah, and what really just read the whole thing. Yeah, what sparked our imagination was this quote, and I love using it when we speak at Women of Vision events because I truly believe that Women of Vision are we're standing on the spirit of of the, the abolitionists of 200 years ago. So this is from Adam Hochschild's uh, book, Bury the Chains. The women's societies were almost always bolder than those of men. Men recognized that it was the women who were keeping the movement alive at a, at a very difficult time. Ladies' associations did everything, a prominent male activist acknowledged. They circulated publications, they procured money to publish, they dunned and talked and, co and coaxed and lectured. They got up in public meetings and filled our halls and platforms when the day arrived. They carried around petitions and enforced the duties of signing them. In a word, they formed the cement of the whole anti-slavery building. 
I love that. They form the cement. You women are the cement here. And I hope that you men that are here listen to the part where it was talking about um, uh, procuring the money to make this. I think we're going to have that part later, right, Jim? Okay. Just a little thought there. Okay, Shane, you brought it home when we were talking about numbers in this book. And how did you do that? Um, you, you showed... You brought it down to the cities, um, and I need to see something concrete. When you say to me, "There's," uh, we extrapolate that there's 27 million yeah. slaves. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I mean, we. This is a pretty well documented um, statistic: 27 million slaves in the world. But they also think that that's a conservative number. And so, to really kind of take that humongous number and put it into something tangible, you're talking about the populations of New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago, like all enslaved. And we can talk. I don't know if, if you want to, but you talk about like the definition of slavery and what that means. And so, you know, there is there's very much so the very much alive, the slavery that we, as we understand it of 200 years ago, but the reality is it looks very different today. Slavery is illegal in every single country in the world and yet it thrives. And you know, I don't know if Kim wants to talk, Kim, really, you're so good with these stats. Yeah, go for it. You want more statistics? Sure. Well, and some of the new numbers they even have out is 29.3, I guess, is the new statistics on how many slaves are estimated. Like Shani said, 80%. Um, women and children, but um, in terms of the types of slaves that we see in our world today, I think um, some of the ones that they're most familiar with that kind of capture our headlines is sex trafficking and sex slavery that both here in the United States and overseas through uh, very maybe obvious street prostitution or um, any kind of act of commercial sexual exploitation. Anything under the age of 18 would be considered sex trafficking. Um, by definition, um, then there's, if we can, you want to go through the whole forms, right through um, agricultural slavery, through harvesting of our cocoa in regions like the Ivory Coast, to picking straws so through, and these are documented cases, this is not just made up, but documented cases of um, agricultural workers in our tomato fields and our strawberry fields, all different kind of agriculture, both here in the United States and overseas, to the mining, if anyone, ha anyone in the room have a cell phone, or own a computer. Uh, so every single one of us in the room has certain minerals, Colton, Tan, Tungsten, that is in all of our electronics. And those are, majority of those are mined in one of the most beautiful and lush countries. That's a, one of the projects of the Women of Vision here in, in Congo. And a lot of what is going on in the conflicts in those areas are around these mines, mining for those minerals and, and children and women and men are being enslaved to mine those minerals that ultimately end up on our cell phones. And then there's cocoa and chocolate and in coffee and rice. I mean, you, cotton. You go down that whole, um, the, the, the recent fires this last year in Bangladesh of the, the horrible factory in Bangladesh where over 200 people had died in that fire were all employees maybe getting paid most likely not, that were burned in that um, horrible fire and of making our clothing that we see here. So from agriculture to labor to mining, slavery impacts every aspect of our lives. So in the book you talk about fair trade and supply chain audits. How, how does that work? You mentioned Bangladesh, you mentioned cocoa. 
tighter um, supply chains? Well, you, you talk about poverty and slavery, and both of you in, have written about this in the book, so I don't know who wants to kind of take the lead. I think you talked about some of the challenges of fair trade. Right, so there, there's definitely, um, there's some pieces of legislation that are out that help with the supply chain. I think it's the Frank Dodd, um, some of you in the Women of Vision would know this actually better than I would, um, those that have done so much advocacy. The Frank Dodd bill that was passed in 2004, I believe, that really focuses on clean supply chain within, um, within minerals. And so there are certain pieces of legislation that are in place, but it's the enforcement of that legislation. Um, so clean supply chains, Big companies would like to say it's really complicated, and to a certain degree, but it's not impossible. I believe that every, every single industry has the possibility, the ways to make a clean supply chain. So from the harvesting out of the ground into our cell phones, there's a way of tracking the hands that, it, that each of those commodities, each of those pieces have touched to guarantee that everyone in that supply chain, everyone who's touched that merchandise, sewed that shirt, um, harvest that mineral in the molting places, that they all have been paid a fair wage and have the freedom to leave if their circumstances are not acceptable. And I think that freedom to leave, getting paid a fair wage, and I think that fair trade, that uh, third party auditing arm that, we, that is available on some products is helpful. Um, it's definitely not the end, but it's definitely helpful in, in providing that um, to guarantee of a clean supply chain. But I think there's definitely a lot more work we can do on the clean supply chain. And Shane, what role does poverty play in uh, people becoming trapped in those factories and on those plantations? Yeah, I think that the, this is the part, again, that I am very um, thankful and humble that World Vision and Women in Vision is focusing on this topic because World Vision really is the Christian humanitarian leading organization that is helping people. I mean, that's their whole mission, right, is to be a bridge to the poorest of the poor. And so it's very close to my heart that it is the poorest of the poor who are being caught in, in, in modern-day slavery. It is the poorest of the poor who are easily exploited and taken advantage of. You know, I always tell the story, you know, poor people are not just, they're not, they're not, um, you know, till, for, okay, for lack of a better word, you know, they're not just stupid people. And what I mean by that is this. You know, if a mother in, let's say, Mali, um, if she's in this village, this landlocked country that has no natural resources, has a corrupt government, has no infrastructure, if, if a woman in a village, in a very rural village, if she has options for her family, meaning she is fed, her children are fed, her roof is patched, she has enough to um, put together a little bit of a, a business on the side of the road so that she can sell carrots or peanuts. That woman, or, or let's say she has clean water. I mean, I'm sure that this chapter has put in a, so many beautiful wells for people. If she has clean water and doesn't have to spend four hours a day walking to get water that may or may not kill her third born from diarrhea before that child reaches five. I mean, these, these are basic things that are still happening in our world. If that mother has 
choices, an opportunity to be safe, for her children to be educated, and for her to have a sense of empowerment over her finances and her land and her life. This is where I'm getting to. She will not be vulnerable. So when that slick person comes driving in on that motorcycle and says, hey, I got a really good job for that 12-year-old daughter of yours washing dishes two countries away, she's going to be like, yeah, no, thank you. We're good. We're good. We don't need the job. You know, and that family is safe, and those children are safe because it is poverty that fuels human trafficking in most of the world. It is exploitation of people who are desperate. They have no food. They have no choices. And so on a hope beyond hope, even if they have that voice in the back of their head saying, don't do this. Do not send your daughter on the back of this motorbike to go over bumpy roads behind checkpoints for a job that may or may do not do this. She's not going to ignore that voice. She will say, no, thank you. We're good. And that is what Women in Vision does. And that is what World Vision does, is they provide that net so that those people have choices. And you, you nip human trafficking in the bud when you fight poverty. And then we talk about, yes. Reducing, reducing the vulnerability of the supply for, for slaves. What about demand, Kim? Yeah, demand. That educated consumer that you talked about in here. Yeah. I, edu no, it's educated and informed consumer. I quoted you. Yeah, well, we, we, we live in this capitalist consumer culture. So the issue of human trafficking is a supply and demand issue. So we have the supply. We have men, women, children. We have free labor. But the demand is us. The demand is we want our, we want our stuff fast and cheap. And we want... The lowest price, I, we were, I was raised in a culture that the lowest price is the best deal. And I'm a smart consumer if I get the best deal. I mean, I would find like the shoes for, on clearance for five bucks and I'd get a comment, I love your shoes. Oh my gosh, I found them in the back of Ross in this clearance section, they were $5.99. I would brag that like I'm such a smart, I'm so smart with my money, I'm such a smart consumer because I'm buying things the cheapest. So that question, that be, those things began to shift in my head. Why is it, can it be possible for a shirt to be made for $2.99? Really be made where the woman, man, child who's making that shirt is actually getting paid a fair wage. And I began to question, how is this actually just discounted because I bought in bulk? Or is there an, what's on the other side of that cheap price tag? So the demand, all of human trafficking, I mean, what's that? The, the scripture that um, the root, money is the root of all evil. I mean, this is a supply and demand. So we have a supply of vulnerable people, a vulnerable population, but we have a demand of people who want products cheaply. They want, regardless of the type, you know, the demand for sex trafficking is men who want what they want when they want it by any age they want. So it, all of this, and the demand side is us as consumers. Whatever that thing is that we're consuming, whether it's a cup of coffee um, or whether it is um, you know, pornography even, whatever that demand side is, we are that demand, we are the consumer. How do we start to change that? 
I think being educated, coming here and beginning to think, I think we begin to change that is um, questioning. I know for me, for sure, questioning at a point of purchase. Why is, those, why is that cheap? Do I need this? Is this the best, use of my mo- the best use of my money? I definitely believe that we all have a certain amount of purchasing power. We have consumer power, and so we have to begin to ask ourselves, what are we doing with the power that we have? When I buy a cup of coffee, have I taken the 30 seconds to say, hey, do you by any chance have fair trade coffee here? When I go to buy my coffee in bulk at Costco, am I scanning and looking for that fair trade label? By taking that extra time and educating myself is, am I using the consumer power that I have most wisely? Is it the best use and how is that impacting? Because I used to think that, you know, you just buy the thing and without every action that we have has some sort of consequence. So that buying that chocolate bar actually has a consequence. Now I begin to see the link between that child in the Ivory Coast that is harvesting that cocoa. So I think that we begin by educating, questioning, setting something down, redirecting our spending, and pushing back to companies. I think part of that change is having to use that voice as consumers and asking companies, we want, we need, we demand a clean supply chain and all of our products, but it has to happen with every individual asking and making that a priority to ask, to use their voice, use their advocacy power, and um, asking those questions. And here in California, we have the right to do that because the Supply Chain Transparency Act passed in 2010. So check it out and find out how to ask. Shane, when you guys were writing the book and you wrote the reflective questions at the end, um, when we were talking the other day, you used a term that made me understand better what that was about. I thought at first you were talking about the victims, but I think you were talking about us. You were talking about spiritual poverty. And um, those reflection questions change how I engage in what you wrote. You want to talk about spiritual poverty? Well, when Kim, you know, when Kim and I started talking about this issue and then when we decided, you know, we need to write a book about it. I think it's Maya Angelou who says, you know, write the book you wish you had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when Kim and I were trying to educate ourselves, we were, it's a humongous issue. I mean, it's, it's global, it's domestic, it's, it's a huge criminal network that as a suburban mom, I have no business really being on the front lines of that. I mean, like, how in the world can I truly get engaged with this and make a meaningful dent in it? And, and as Kim and I would talk to friends about it as we would start to process how our hearts were breaking over the reality of modern day slavery for, for our counterparts in the world, like mothers and children, you know, our friends would say to us, do not just tell us a horrible story. Do not just sit here and make us feel awful. You know, give us something to do. And so that's where the reflection questions came in at the end of every chapter, is we really tried to write a book that was a book of resource, a book of education, but then also a book that addressed sort of our own spiritual poverty of what is it that keeps us from engaging these issues? What is that inside of us that we just don't want to hear it? We don't want it. We, we, it's too much to engage the, the suffering of other people. You know, and I feel incredibly humbled and blessed to, to be a part of events like this, to, to have a friend like Kim who's willing to go there with me, who's willing to be like, you know what? This is outrageous. 
that this is happening to people's children. God loves these people as much as he loves our own families. And instead of just pushing it away, it's pulling it closer, you know, dealing with my own apathy, my own ignorance, or, or, or just my own, um, you know, Kim and I talked about this a lot, like the, the own limitations that we place on ourselves of, of that we can't possibly make a dent. And so I think that that's what I was referring to about spiritual poverty is that God is, is bigger than all of this. I mean, if we are Christians, if we truly are living out the theology, you know, I always say people live their theology, Okay, that's pretty intense. People live their theology. So you look at your life. Are you living what you say you believe? And how does that translate to those suffering close to home and far away? And really, really trying to come to terms with that in ways that are hopeful and, 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 and lead toward action instead of just sort of, you know, beating ourselves up. Kim? Yeah, and I think that, that I know for me, when I first came, I had all kinds of excuses for... Uh, what was holding me back from any kind of action. For one, I thought there's nothing really I could do. You know, I'm, I'm just a mom. I mean, how many times, I was laughing, how many times did I go to events and, hey, I'm, I'm here with such and such of organization. Who are you here with? I'm just a mom. And so I began to say, I'm just a mom. There's nothing that I can do. I don't have a lot of resources. I have very lim- a limited amount of time. I'm not an expert. I... I mean, I can, I can go down the laundry list of things that I use as an excuse. But then I began to think, there's no excuses. Because the women of 200 years ago, they had excuses. And that's why we mentioned them. When I began to read about Angelina and Sarah Grimke, these sisters from uh, North Carolina, whose dad was a plantation owner, and who, you know, there were no voices for women back in the South. And even during that time, no votes. And here they were daughters of a slave owner and apparently in a Christian community, and they were trying to get their Christian friends rallied. No one wanted to hear from them. And they actually had to move out of their area up to the north to join the abolition movement in the north to really get, move, to really get movement. And I thought, if they can do what they accomplished with all of that was real limitations. There was no excuses for me. I began, if they were able to do that, then there's something that I can begin to do. And I think that those reflection questions at the end are to really pinpoint what are our fears, what are excuses that we have, and begin to sit in those. What are, what are those things that we keep um, limiting ourselves from doing that next thing, to stepping out and having that awkward conversation, inviting those group of friends to watch that documentary that might leave everyone stunned? Because I can talk you through many experiences where you invite and you get this glazed look, or you walk over to that social, oh, I mean, for, for a long period of time, I'd walk over to my neighbors, and it was like, Friday night, glass of wine with the neighbors. Oh, here she comes. It was like, I was bursting at the scene. There's thought, the neighbor. She's going to come and talk to us about of. slavery. Yeah. yeah. And then I met you. Yeah, and then you were, yeah. <laughs> okay, but we're not going to leave them in this stunned zone today. Let's teach them the 888 number. That would give them one tool before yeah. they leave today. Okay, yeah, we love doing this. Okay, everyone, take out your cell phones. You can do this. It's, it's, so right. Right. You can bring out at, your cell at phones. A, at a proper social Jim, gathering, get, get your, your phone out and stare at your screen. Because <laughs> one of the things we, one of the things that we begin to see is that there's so many tools out there already for us. And I'm saying us as us as the ordinary person. We don't have an expertise in social justice issues, and we may not be law enforcement. And um, we, you know, 
so these are some tools that already exist that are very necessary for us to use because they're already there. And this is a National Human Trafficking Hotline number. And you call this number, so I'm going to tell you this number. It's 888-3737-888. 888-3737-888. So if you're suspicious about something, you see something that doesn't seem quite right, and you don't have to have all the answers, you could just seem something like that's not quite right, if you are moving to a new area and you want to get involved with an, a new anti-trafficking organization or you have a question about something, this is that same number. Or if, you want to, if you're concerned for someone to get out, you can hand them this number and say, call if you need help. 888-3737-888. Yeah, and I just want to tell a personal story about this. Um, I... You know, here I was, I, you know, had, had a friend who was educating me, and then we really had this mission to go out and educate other people about what was happening with human trafficking in our midst. And, you know, I live in a suburb of Chicago that's not too unlike, you know, Newport Beach area. It's a lovely suburb of Chicago. It's Wheat, just freezing. Wheaton, Illinois, it's cold. It's horrible. It's horrible. Don't ever go there. Okay. But, so what, what happens in my area, and I don't, I don't know if this happens around this area, but what happens in my area is... There will be these vans that drop off young men, and they drop them off in kind of the nicer neighborhoods, and they solicit, and they go door to door. And in the past, before I started waking up to this issue, if one of these um, young men came to my door, I would hide, I would wait till they walked on, I would certainly not go answer the door, I would completely ignore this person, who was clearly from the city of Chicago and not from my town. But I start, when I started educating myself of what, where possibly these young men are coming from and maybe that they are there being exploited or under duress, it changed me. And so even just a couple months ago, well, two stories. What happened to me is one guy came to the door and you guys, even though I had written a book on human trafficking, I was busy, I didn't want to deal with this guy. I go to the door and he is clearly distressed and he's trying to sell me something, and he doesn't have the badge that he's supposed to have from the city, and he's handing me this leather thing that there's nothing in there he's trying to sell, and he's trying to get me to sign up for magazines, or I don't even know, and I do not have time for him, and I don't want to deal with him, and all I want to do is shut the door in his face, and I basically did. But you know what? I will never forget the look of desperation in his eyes. It never left me because I missed an opportunity, and the next time... Three months later, you guys, it's just, I don't know who these people are in my area, but this would be like the perfect example to use the hotline number on because I'm not law enforcement. So thankful for those that are here who can follow up on it. you know. But I, they're dropping them off in our neighborhoods, and this, this kid shows up, and suddenly I'm like, Shane, pay attention. And I open the door, and what do I see? I see a teenager. His, the clothes don't fit. They're, it's obviously not his suit. It's dirty. He's dirty, his teeth aren't clean, and he's trying to sell me something with no badge, no identifying thing. And, and I, I didn't shut the door in his face this time, you know? And I just, I kind of listened to his spiel, and then I said, hey, can you hold on a second? And then I went back, and we talk about this in the book, but I went back and I wrote the human trafficking hotline number down on a post-it note. And I came back to the door, and I just said to him, you know, he's still trying to spiel me. And I said to him, hey, are you okay? It totally threw him for a loop. He did not know what to say to me. He wasn't making eye contact anymore and just asked me like where the nearest like grocery store was. 
Just, that's all I said. Are you okay? And then I handed him the number and said, call this if you need help. And the reason that Kim and I talk about the human trafficking hotline number is, you know, it's a criminal en endeavor. We would never tell the ordinary person to ever put themselves in harm way, harm's way. But there are these compassionate, paying attention, open your eyes ways that, you, that these people are no longer invisible. And that's what's going to stop it in our own backyards. And that's what's going to stop it globally, is ordinary, everyday people with hearts paying attention. And they're no longer invisible. And so I did what I could that day. And that was with that hotline number. A huge thank you to Kim and Shane for joining us for this conversation today. And of course, a thank you for Sandy for taking the time to sit down at the dinner to dialogue with both of them. We hope you'll check out the Refuse to Do Nothing book. And if this show has been helpful to you, I also hope you'll take a moment to go onto iTunes or Stitcher or whatever audio directory you listen to this show through and leave us a review. Let us know how the show has been helpful to you. And you can also visit the website for tons of information, resources, and show notes for this episode. And that is gcwj.vanguard.edu. And that stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. We'll see you again in two weeks. Have a great week. Take care.